Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, We are, it's June, it's actually mid-June already, and I did have a message for those seniors out there. So for those of you who have finalized your college choice, you're getting excited, getting ready, um, you might be getting messages from your college that you need to make sure they get your final transcript. And those messages may include deadlines that are completely out of whack with your school year. Uh, So I know that some colleges have already sent these out asking for final transcripts, and here in Massachusetts. Massachusetts. School hasn't even ended yet. Um, So do me a favor. Do not send a panicked email to your guidance counselor or call your school counselor, uh, you know, begging them to send along a transcript that isn't ready yet. Just know that the colleges will take these as they become available. And if you're still concerned, then what you can do is call the college, confirm that, it's okay to send the transcript as soon as the high school has it available, which for many high schools will be sometime in early July. And the colleges know this. I don't know why some don't change that messaging, but they don't. Um, but don't make your school counselors crazy. Please do us a favor. Um, okay. We have, as always, uh, what I think is a great show for you. We're going to be talking about how to think about borrowing for college. We never want you to borrow too much, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, We're also going to talk about PG years, postgraduate years. Um, We're sharing the personal experience of an educator here at College Coach who did one of those PG years. Um, But before we get to all of that, one thing that I know is top of mind for everyone right now is distance learning. And um, obviously, with everything going on with COVID-19 and the pandemic, the need for distance learning has become it's a need that everyone has really. And um, certainly as we think about what's going to happen in the fall and possibly in the winter, as we continue in this new COVID-19 world, um, distance learning may become more and more important and maybe something that many of you are considering for the coming year. So I'm very excited. I'm welcoming um, another a representative from another division here at Bright Horizons called Edisys, which primarily supports adult learners. Um, and Joanna Williams is here with us today. Hi, Joanna. Hello. Nice to meet you. Yep. And uh, happy to have you here on the show. So Joanna is an advisor and her background is in supporting non-traditional learners. Um, so non-traditional learners have been learning using distance learning for a long time now. And of course, it's now coming to the fore in everyone's brain because of everything going on. So, Joanna, can we start with a definition? What is distance learning? Um, I, you know, I think about like my son attending a couple of Zoom classes, and I don't really think that that's what it is. So, distance learning is really any time your class is either broadcasted over the internet, um, conducted online, um, really any time the student is not physically in a classroom. So, those, those Zoom classes it may be more of a hybrid, but it is technically considered part of distance learning. Okay. So then what are, in your opinion, some of the positives of distance learning? So distance learning allows a lot of flexibility on the side for students. Um, Sometimes classes, sometimes schools will change class types to be only seven or weeks long. Um, Sometimes they'll even do accelerated classes, letting you get to the job market faster. Um, There's just a lot of different options. Got it. Okay. So um, certainly the flexibility is interesting. What about, I don't know that our listeners necessarily have considered distance learning before now. That could be not true, but we don't get <laughs> questions about it. And usually if people want to hear more about something, we get questions about it. Um, I think right now people are thinking about distance learning primarily from the perspective of if we're not back in class in the fall, um, my student or, it, you know, if I'm the student or if you're the parent, um, you're not going to be in the classroom. There's going to be distance learning. But there are actually out there some very specific programs that are designed around distance learning. And so um, 
What can you tell us about the, about that piece? You know, I don't think that many of us are focused on what those options are. I don't even really know how many options there are in that, in that area. So I'd love to, to learn a little more about that. Yeah, um, distance learning has just exploded over the last five years. And even this year, many people found themselves forced into on to distance learning or online learning um, without even realizing that that was something that was going to happen that year. Um, there are pretty much every school offers some sort of courses online. And now even more schools offer courses online. Um, some schools even offer full degree programs um, online for distance education. Right. So one of the things that you were mentioning before the segment was that it also might open up a wider variety of courses and majors. So how does that work? And, and how, do you, how do you see that piece for, for families? So when it comes to distance education, you get the wider assortment of programs because you're not constrained by what schools are in your area. If you wanted to, if you wanted to commute and stay home, like you're not constrained by that. Um, or if you wanted to stay in at an in-state school, you know, you actually can have access to schools across the country. And a lot of times online programs will charge the same tuition um, as an in-state student or um, a lower tuition rate for online because they have a lot fewer overhead costs to pay for. Got it. And so what's different, of course, about this than, say, a traditional school going to distance learning because they can't physically have students on their campus is that the programs you're talking about are designed specifically for distance learners. There is no expectation that they're going to be bringing people to campus and filling dorm rooms and selling meal plans and things like that. Um, it's designed exclusively to be online and, I, you know, for those reasons, it's a cheaper option. And I think for that reason, a pretty interesting uh, option. In your opinion, what are some of the negatives to uh, distance learning? It's not for everybody. Um, Distance learning can definitely cater to certain learning styles. If you find yourself being a visual learner, you know, it could be a really great opportunity for you. If you find yourself um, being an auditory or um, the physical learner where you're hands-on, it may not be the type for you. Um, You also do miss out on many social aspects of being on campus, um, talking to your instructor, talking to classmates. While you do still have that interaction distance and online, you know, you do still miss out on a little bit. Um, You do also have to rely very heavily on your own personal time management. Your time management is so important because you don't have somebody looking over your shoulder, asking, Mm -hmm. telling you, hey, you have an assignment due on Friday. You have reading that you need to do tonight, there will be a syllabus. And a lot of times, you know, you'll, you'll view some lectures that were recorded and you're responsible for the rest of the work. Um, you also, for the last one, you don't necessarily have as good of access to campus resources. You do still have access to academic advisors, libraries, um, career centers, but you can't get up and just walk into the room. So it, there is a little bit of a, um, a barrier there. Right, right. Exactly. So if you're someone who's very social, who is really going to want to be able to meet people in class and then go out and grab a beer afterwards or engage with your professor in office hours and then ultimately wind up maybe doing research with that person, the beer part is not really possible. The the stuff with developing a relationship with your professor might be possible, but it's going to take a whole lot more effort and energy than maybe it would if you were physically there. I would. People are having happy happy hour with COVID now on That's Zoom. That's true. So you never. I mean, it could be a normal thing in a few years. <laughs> in a few years, it could be. It could be. I, I, you know, with the rate at which people are returning to uh, restaurants and social activities, you know, I guess some people are returning to them fairly readily. Other people maybe less so. But I, I do think people crave that human interaction. But in the current world this kind of distance learning might not be a bad idea, especially if you are um, immunocompromised or you live with family who are immunocompromised or yeah. if, you're, if your financial situation has changed such that the cost of a four-year in-person or even um, a two-year in-person is perhaps going to be not really um, something that you can do right now. So, yeah, I think and it's important I, to know you have you can still get that quality education through distance. That's really my overall topic is that if you need to go online, 
you can still get a good quality education. Your diploma isn't necessarily going to say this student went online for six classes or this student completed this course, this program. I mean, some, some schools who are totally online do that, but like if you're going to your local state school, Mm -hmm. 99% of the time, you're just going to get the same degree as everybody else. Right. And that is actually a really important point. And um, what it says on your diploma, what you are adding to your resume is really at the end of the day, what matters. If you got your degree, a future employer is not really going to care. Well, tell me about this. Did you do half of this online? And then suddenly look at that as less than. Um, They're going to say, oh, great. You got your degree from a recognizable institution and um, and an accredited institution. And this looks great to me. And they're not going to, especially when it's a school that also has a bricks and mortar, they may not frequently even know that you did part of the work online or all of the work online in some cases. So when we think about who distance learning might be right for, we, we, I just talked about maybe you, it's not really safe for you to be in the classroom right now, or maybe the cost of going in person is prohibitive, but who are some other people who you think that distance learning would be great for? So distance learning is great for some students who say, if you're looking to graduate quicker and you want to um, get out of the job market. Um, or if you just want to make sure that you're always working towards your degree, um, it does allow, there are programs that allow that accelerated format um, that allow students to continually um, work all the way through the year without holidays. Um, it, there's a lot of options for that. And then with students who um, say they, they do want to take maybe a gap year and um, do an internship or do something where they're doing some personal development, you could take a class or two while you're doing that um, and allows you to continue, if you want to be in classes, to continue to be in classes and still um, develop yourself. Yep. And one caveat that I want to throw out to our listeners is that if you do, you want to make sure if you're taking a gap year and you've been accepted to a four-year program, you want to make sure that taking classes online doesn't violate the terms of your gap year or your deferral. Um, At some schools, they might consider that verboten and not consider you as an entering freshman anymore. Um, Maybe you're taking a gap year, you haven't applied anywhere. Taking some courses online could mean that you would be applying more as a transfer, um, which could be great, especially if you're doing it to save money because now you're entering with advanced standing. But if that wasn't your goal, if your goal was simply to occupy yourself over the next year and hope that things are back to normal and to enter class uh, or enter college as a freshman then taking classes could could mess with that. Not everywhere, but just something that you want to be aware of and check with the school, um, either your schools of interest or the school where you're deferring your, your decision. Um, so in terms of people maybe who you would suggest not consider it, I think you kind of mentioned this briefly earlier, but just to highlight again, there are some people for whom distance learning might not be the right choice. And, um, and who would those be specifically? We touched on it lightly earlier. It was where students who um, may not be a very good visual learner or may feel like that they don't necessarily get as much content out of doing things from their computer. Um, those who also don't, who it, it, distance learning can give you a lot of autonomy, so to speak. And it's not necessarily great for those who um, may require me. Not that require, but maybe mm-hmm. just need someone to help give them a push, to give them a boost while they're doing their classes. Um, there just isn't someone telling you when to study and um, when to do your work. In addition, um, online classes, some people will assume they're easier. Honestly, they are. They can be harder than on-campus classes. You have to prove your participation. Where in class, you can raise your hand and say, hi, I'm here, here's my comment. In Online, you have to post in a discussion board, typically, um, or you'll have to produce paper, like, produce some extra papers just to prove that you're learning the concepts. Right. Right. So if you're the kind of person who maybe waltzes into class, hasn't necessarily done the reading, but is great at kind of tagging on to a conversation that's already happening and getting your participation in that way, that's not really going to fly with this kind because you're going to have to be on the board and you're going to have to be, you know, sort of more thoughtful about how, because you're going to have to write your responses as well, which is different for a lot of people than speaking them. For some people, it's awesome. They prefer to do that. And for other people, um, the verbal communication is, is how 
is their preferred mode. Um, so I think those are really some great um, pointers and tips around who is this going to be good for and who would this maybe not be good for. Um, one question that I have, there isn't really a clearinghouse where you can go to find um, online programs. Any advice um, that you would have for students searching for some distance learning options um, that are more like established programs um, that are kind of in the form that we were talking about earlier, where uh, it's not just they threw a class online because they had to, but it's more of a thoughtful, intentional choice. Absolutely. Um, Many programs, you know, there are a lot of schools who have just thrown their classes online, and it's very clear that they did just throw those classes online. Um, You do want to do a little bit of research into the school. How long have they been doing classes online? Did they just throw them online because of COVID and their instructors have training? Um, You also want to look for the same things you would look for in an on-campus program. You want to make sure they're an accredited program. Um, You want to make sure that it's a well-known school. Um, If you're not familiar with the name, you don't want it to be a for-profit institution. Um, Those have a very, those have a pretty bad reputation. Um, And then you also want to make sure that the program you're in itself also potentially has some additional accreditation like the campus would have. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Those are, some, those are good pointers. And just to clarify, we're not saying that for-profit is necessarily a bad choice. Absolutely. But, absolutely. Right? <laughs> just that um, you want to understand the difference between the two and you want to really look closely at um, the quality of the program very briefly, because we're we're actually going a little extra time, but I think this is really important. You um, explained briefly to me before we got on the call around checking out accreditation. Can you explain exactly what families should look for um, in that, the quick version? Yeah, absolutely. Very fast. Um, okay. So when you're looking for accreditation, you want what's called regional accreditation. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's what you want because the Department of Education just cut the country up into six pieces and said, here's your region. Um, The opposite of that is national accreditation. And that is not what you want for academic programs. That's more for vocational technical programs. So you want regional and the Department of Education lists all of them. So I don't have to list all of them for you. Um, And honestly, uh, you just want to make sure you focus on that regional accreditation and even programmatic accreditation, um, AACSB for business programs, for example. You, you need those things to um, really boost up your degree program. Sure, to make sure that it's a valid degree. But I think that's really important. You want to look for that regional accreditation um, and make sure that the program has it. If they have that, you should feel comfortable that that's a quality program. If they don't have it, we would advise mm-hmm. steering clear. Joanna, well, there thank are you. for-profit schools that have that regional accreditation too. So, I mean, it's, it's not that they're not accredited. It's just that reputation. Exactly, exactly. And it, and it may be fine for the industry that you're in or the industry that you want to go into, and it may not be. Um, but at the very least, you want that institution, whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, to have the regional accreditation. So Absolutely. Okay. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a great time. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about borrowing for college. So don't go away. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. 
That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am excited. Jean, I I don't know when the last time you have been on the show that I have hosted, but it feels like forever. It does. I'm excited to have Jean Mahan, my colleague, back to join me today. She's a former financial aid officer at both Tufts and Quinn Sigmund Community College. And I will say what I say every time. I love saying that word. I don't know why. It makes (laughs) fun. Um, all right, Jean, we are talking about borrowing for college mm-hmm. and a common theme amongst all of us is we just don't want people to borrow any more than they have to and to right. not get in over their heads, right? So true. So um, to that end, we have a whole segment today about thinking through borrowing before mm-hmm. you do it. Um, and, and I guess there's, you know, you're sitting down, you get the bill, and you're thinking, well, I don't have enough money to write the check for this amount right now. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll borrow. Um, mm-hmm. But that is, it shouldn't necessarily be the first thing you think about, correct? Exactly. Exactly. I am in love with tuition payment plans. I call them the unsung heroes of college finance. And so most colleges have these opportunities where you pay a setup fee. It's usually pretty modest. And you pay over either uh, six, eight, or 10 months, you choose the amount. So maybe you know that you're getting a raise or you're getting a bonus or you've got a car loan that will be paid off. And in a few months, you'll have $2,000 or $4,000 over the course of the school year that you can put towards this. It allows you to break up those payments interest free over those few months. So, you know, if, if for example, you were able to put $4,000 a year on a payment plan, You've saved $16,000 in borrowing over the course of four years, not to mention the origination fees and the, and the interest. So I always tell people, just really look at your budget, you know, see what's going to be ending. Think about all those expenses your child takes away with them when they leave, their appetites, their friends' appetites, <laughs> sports, activities, you know, possibly car insurance if they're more than 100 miles away. And then you might have enough money to free up to, to use a payment plan. Right. And to at least cover more of it in a payment plan right? Um, because you're spreading it out rather than exactly. having to have that money right yep. then. So when you think about how much you need mm-hmm. to borrow, right, is that that's another I think you kind of just covered it a little bit when you're talking about think about where you might have some free resources. But, um, you know, how do you decide how much you need to borrow? I sure. guess. So one of the tricky things about this is that when a school tells you how much you're eligible to borrow, for a parent anyway, they're telling you the amount including indirect costs, which are things like books and supplies and personal and transportation. And maybe you don't need to borrow for that. Maybe your student is working over the summer. Maybe you've got some money set aside. Maybe grandma and grandpa are going to cover that. So make sure that you're taking those out. You know, look at the bill and say, okay, what do I really need to pay here? And just make sure that you're borrowing that amount. Again, thinking about what might be ending so that you can reduce it. But also when you're thinking about what you're borrowing, ask yourself a question. If I can't afford this today, will I be able to afford to make these payments in five years? What's likely to change? Mm-hmm. And for some families, it may, the answer may be nothing. Nothing's mm-hmm. going to change and I can't afford it in five years. So you want to be really careful about the amount you're borrowing. You also want to think about how many more kids are coming up behind. I think we forget about those other one, two, three, four kids that are going to come. And, you know, if you borrow for one, you kind of have to borrow for the others because kids' favorite four-letter word is fair. And so (laughs) if, you know, if you say, okay, well, I borrowed for your sister, but I'm not borrowing for you, hey, it's not fair. So thinking about how many kids you need to educate. I once had a conversation with a dad, and he started by saying to me, I have five children, I need to cover X number of years of school, and I'm going to borrow $20,000 a year. And I said, okay, that's $400,000 that you'll need to borrow. And 
he just went silent because he had never thought of it that way. You know, 20000 a year might seem reasonable enough, but when you mm-hmm. add it up, $400,000 is a lot of money. It's an incredible <laughs> amount of money. And it's probably right. a chunk of money that, A, some people m- might really, really struggle to pay back. And also mm-hmm. that can prevent you know, that's money that maybe you could have used to retire at a reasonable age. Oh, totally. You know, right? It's, it's, right. you really do have to weigh the amount of money that you're borrowing against. We want to give our children things, but we don't want to saddle them with debt and we don't mm-hmm. want to saddle ourselves with debt, especially right. because there are more reasonable options out mm-hmm. there. So, of course, it's tricky hard. if. Sorry. Okay. Encourage people to think about how old they'll be when this process is done. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to be 52 or 55, when all your kids are out of school, you probably have several years of working left. But if you're going to be 62 or 65 or a little older, do you want to be carrying this debt into retirement? Probably not. Right, right. So when we think about who is doing the borrowing, so we've cautioned against borrowing too much and and not thinking about how much ultimately you will borrow because what you borrow this year, you're going to likely have to do again for the next three years. And like you say, you may have to do that for every single child to do the addition, add it up. Mm -hmm. But now you've determined, okay, I am going to borrow some money. I'm going to try not to borrow too much. Who is the borrower? Is it the student? Is it the parent? Yeah. So I always encourage families to really have their student max out their, their student loan, federal student loan eligibility, which isn't huge. People are always surprised to find out how modest the loan limits are. You know, it's $5,500 for a freshman, $6,500 for a sophomore, $7,500 for juniors and seniors. But the interest rates are always lower. It's always going to be in your student's name. You're not going to be responsible for that loan. And they can defer that um, loan while they're in school. And this year, I've been in financial aid for so many years, since 1993, I'm going to, all right, I'm coming clean, I'll be honest. <laughs> and this is the lowest interest rate I've ever seen. It's 2.75 for a student loan this year. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Almost makes me want to go back to school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, you know, have your student max out their eligibility. Often a parent will say to me, you know, I don't want my student to borrow, but it doesn't make sense. If you want to repay it later, go for it. But right. it doesn't make sense to borrow more at a higher interest rate and leave that interest, lower interest rate on the table. Exactly. So if what you need is what your child can afford or what your child is eligible to borrow, why wouldn't you do it all that way? Mm -hmm. And then like you say, you can pay it off. There's nothing going to prevent you from writing the check to pay it (laughs) off. Exactly. But it's just going to be at a lower interest rate and it's not going to be in your name so that eventually if you are not going to pay it off, it will be your student's responsibility and it's their education. So that Mm -hmm. seems to make sense as well. There are also federal parent loans, and that is the parent that's the borrower. That can never be transferred to the students. Lots of parents say, well, my student will be paying that off. Great. But you can't change the name on that. So you're going to have to work out an arrangement, you know, share some sort of an account where the money is coming out every month so you can see and that that's not hurting your credit rating if, you're, if your kid can't make the payment on time. Right. Um, the only way to get that out of your name is to potentially refinance that out of a federal loan and into a private loan at some point down the road after graduation when your student is maybe a little bit um, stronger financially and has a credit history so they can get a decent interest rate. And then um, many parents say, you know, I, I don't want to be on the loan at all. I'm, I'm going to have my student borrow through a private education loan. Okay, um, your student will be the borrower, but since about 2010, you have not been able to borrow those. Students have not been able to borrow those loans without a co-signer. Yeah. So who's that? It's usually going to be a parent. And so that does link you to the loan. You know, you have to be careful. I think people are cavalier about co-signing loans, but you're on the hook if something happens, if the student can't make the payments, if they're paying late, that's going to hurt your credit. So, you know, I think parents really need to be aware of what they're borrowing, who's responsible, are we both responsible, or only I? Um, and to think about the ramifications, not only, you know, how old will you be and what do you want to do, but, you know, will your student, the social worker, be able to pay $100,000 in student loans when they, when they graduate, you know, yours plus their own? 
Right. So, well, and the other thing I think about too is think about it. You're co-signing a loan with a person who, in many cases, has not worked before, or perhaps only worked a part-time job. Right. Um, you know, you they don't really understand often what it means to borrow that much money. What they understand is that this is the school they really want to attend, yes. and mm-hmm. it looks like it's going to be the most fun, or in theory, it has the best program. But you have no idea how it's going to go. Are they going to actually like it? Are they going to do that program that guarantees the high paying job when they get out? Are they going to graduate into an economy that's like this one or like another, right? These are, these are important things to be thinking about. And you may, you may have one of those kids who is super responsible and, and together you're going to work collaboratively and it's going to get paid off and it isn't going to hurt your credit and you're not going to have any issues, but there are oftentimes challenges, you know, so to ignore that that's a possibility is to do so at your own peril, right? Exactly. Right. Right. Um, In terms of um, those interest rates, when you borrow, are they Mm -hmm. fixed? Are they variable? What kind of, you know, what are you getting yourself into? Good. Good question. That's a question everybody should be asking. So with federal student loans, they're going to be fixed for that loan. So mm-hmm. for example, if, if a student is borrowing a loan in the upcoming school year, it'll always be a 2.75. But if they borrow a loan in the following school year, it will have a different interest rate because it's reset every year. A student loan through the feds can never go higher than 6.8%. So you're pretty much certain that, you know, that's going to be as high as it goes. But you'll know that before you borrow the loan. And if, you know, maybe there's going to be a year where you say, mm, not, not happy with that interest rate. Parent plus loans could go as high as 10%, 10.5%, I think it is. And that's pretty high. Yeah. And they have a 4% origination fee. Now, to clarify, they haven't been that high for, you know, they've never really been higher than eight and a quarter for the past 10 years, but it doesn't mean that's not what they could go to. Some families choose to borrow private education loans and they're seduced by that really low um, variable interest rate, you know, 2.75 sure. or something. And they're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Um, two things about that. I rarely see anyone getting the interest rate that low because the student is the primary bar. And as you said, they have no work history, no credit right. history, no way to repay the loan. So the loan rates tend to be significantly higher than that. And if you do a variable and it starts out low, but the repayment term is 15 years, is there a cap on that loan? What will it cap out at? I recently worked with a borrower who had a 12.75% private loan interest rate. Yeah, scary, huh? Yeah, that is And they they were able to refinance that because they had good credit and a job and they were able to get it down to about 6%. So really great. But again, there's so many ifs. Right. What if that doesn't describe you too, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Right. So yeah, that is is a little scary. So be careful of that. Um, What are some other tips that you would offer to families who are thinking about borrowing right now? I know there's a loan calculator that they can be looking at. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So there are lots of loan calculators out there. Many loan um, lenders have them right on their websites. Uh, Bankrate has them. Magnify Money has them. So you can go on there and and get an idea. Like if you think you're going to borrow $20,000 a year and the interest rate, Use the max. You know, if it's a variable rate, use what the max is going to be. Always, you know, kind of think worst case, just in case it turns out that way. And figure out what those monthly payments will look like, especially if the if the student will be the borrower. Um, You know, as I said, you know, a lot of times someone will say, "Well, my student's going to be an engineer, and so they're going to start at seventy five thousand. Yeah, if they continue with the engineering program, one, and also if if they, um, you know, can make those payments, even if they're making 75000 if their debt is a hundred and they're going to live in a high cost of living area, it's going to be extremely difficult to start out that way. Um, it's, you know, akin to a mortgage payment or more. Right. So really thinking about what the career path is in a college coach, we often talk about, you know, if your child doesn't have a particular major in mind, then try to keep it to the federal student loan limit, which is about $30,000 for an undergrad. Because no matter what you're doing, you should be able to make the payments either, you know, on a standard 10-year repayment or using an income-dependent repayment plan. So if you're making very little or not working, your mm-hmm. payment will be zero, but you're still considering repayment. So you're not right. hurting your credit. 
So yeah, I think it's really important to um, check what your monthly payment is. And again, to be thinking about the whole big picture, how many kids here, how much do we think we're going to have to borrow? Yep, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I also think going back to the loan calculator piece, just showing someone, namely your teenager in, and maybe yourself sometimes in black and white, what that payment is actually going to look like yeah. and being and thinking about, okay, you wanted to move to Manhattan after you mm-hmm. graduated. Let's look at how much money you can anticipate paying for uh, an apartment right. if, say, you have three other roommates mm-hmm. and maybe that's where you have to go in order to get that job that pays you $75,000. But also, what's how much money are you going to be spending on groceries? How much money can you expect to spend when you're going out to eat? And how much is left now for you to make this mm-hmm. astronomical payment that you yeah. have to make on your loan? Oh, not only are, is there no money left for that, but you're actually <laughs> going to be going further into debt right. to do anything else that's fun. Mm-hmm. And you know that can be a fairly stark thing. And maybe for you, you'd rather go to that school and then live at home after you graduate if your family will allow that. Yeah. Not a policy we have at my house. <laughs> Once you go to college, that's yeah. you're off into the world. Right? Yeah, so, right. you know, and and that's that sort of really thinking about it. What does this really mean? We do hear that sometimes. Like I didn't realize what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sort of appreciate that especially if this is new for everyone in the family, but at the same time I don't think you know, before you sign on the dotted line and you take that much debt out, you really owe it to yourself to think about what it really is going to mean for you Uh um, and for your future. So I think if any of our listeners have younger students like ninth, 10th, 11th grade, have what I call the conversation, you know, talk about what you can afford and, you know, what they should be thinking about borrowing and how they can help out with this whole process by working or looking for scholarships so that you don't have to get in debt. And really not to be afraid to say to your student, I can't co-sign for you because this is a bad thing for you. This is a bad thing for your future. You have the power. Parents do. I think a lot of parents feel like they want to make their kids' dreams come true. And I get that. I have kids. Sure. So (laughs) I've been there. I do. I've been there. So, um, but, but, you know, not at your financial peril. Yeah. So, or yeah. theirs, even yeah. more important. The whole right? family, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Jean, thank you so much for joining today. Oh, I really appreciate awesome. it. Nice to see you. You too. Take care. Um, we're we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, my colleague Kenan is going to share his postgraduate study um, experience with us. So don't go away. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back and um, we're doing, we've been doing a few segments where we have some of Bright Horizons College Coach 
educators talking a little bit about their own personal experiences. Um, and today I'm excited to have my colleague, Kenan Dick, join. He is a former admissions officer at Swarthmore, at Johnson State, and at Drexel. Um, but he is also someone who went to college and had his own unique experience. So we're going to hear about that today. Hi, Kenan. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for joining. appreciate sure. it. Um, so the thing that I wanted to talk to you about today, which I will confess, I literally had no idea that you did a PG year until I saw it on the schedule. I said, mm-hmm. Kenan did a PG year, and you and I have been working together now for Long time. Years, a long time. <laughs> and I had no idea. So why don't we start with something super basic, which is what is a PG year? Well, um, basically, it's a fifth year of high school. And uh, so when students go into their senior year at, you know, whether it's a prep school or a, pre- or a public school and, um, and they want to do, they just need more preparation, they can do that fifth year beyond graduation. So I had already graduated from high school and I uh, was doing this additional year. And the, there is usually two groups of students that choose this pathway. One is a group of students who didn't feel like their academic record in high school was quite up to what they wanted to do and, and fit their, their needs and their goals. And then number two um, were often students who were uh, athletes and wanted to get a second look at scouts um, or just needed an extra year of maturity, which was often the, the case for hockey players. So there was a number of reasons why you might do something like this. And, you know, where I went, it was basically 50-50, that there's about half of the students were kind of working on their academic record, and the other half of the students were athletes and working on um, getting scouted for a a different school. Got it. Okay. So So those are the students who might consider it. Um, One one thing I would throw out there for those who are considering it for academic reasons, um, and kind of feel free to weigh in. My, my sense is if you didn't have such a great ninth and 10th, but you started to improve in 11th and we're even better in 12th, and now you're going to build on that in a PG year, that could be impactful. If you basically tanked your whole high school career, going to a PG program and suddenly getting straight A's might not change things all that much, but what's your sense? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's it's really um, for students who are kind of at the margin, who just needed that extra boost, um, but were most of the way there to begin with. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, um, one of the values of going to, I went to Kimball Union Academy for my PG year. And one of the interesting things about the way that they do it is that it's a complete reset. Mm, so, um, so the GPA that I had for, for them and the class rank that I achieved there um, was based solely on that additional year and not necessarily incorporated with um, the prior academic curriculum uh, oh. from, uh, from a public school. So, uh, so it really kind of was a, a feeling of um, kind of resetting the clock for me mm-hmm. and starting fresh and having a, a, a fresh slate to work with. And I think for students who get to their junior, senior year, have found that motivation and really want to kind of um, improve their set of options, the PG year could be a really good option for them. Got it. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So what motivated you to do a PG year? Based on what you just said, it makes me think maybe it was academic, but I also know that you're an athlete. So what was it for you? Um, It was primarily academic. And okay. so, um, you know, some of my friends, all of my friends that uh, that I had in high school were really good students. And so, you know, and I wasn't quite as good as they were in terms of my performance. And I wanted to have a, a chance to go to the, some of the types of schools that they were going to, or at least ones that were more challenging than the ones that I had been admitted to. So, um, so my... Coming out of high school, the my top option was University of Vermont mm-hmm. in terms of its selectivity, but at the same time, it was literally two miles from my yeah. house, right? <laughs> yep, exactly. You're like, that is literally my backyard. It's That's in not my a backyard. great choice. I had yeah. swum there for practice every day for like six years, and so, you know, it wasn't something that I found terribly appealing. I wanted to go try something different and, and go to a new place, et cetera. And so, um, so I found this as a, as a chance for me to, uh, to kind of, again, reset my record and uh, also kind of build a stronger foundation in math, um, which was, I was a year behind in math. I was also the youngest, um, second youngest student in my class. Yeah. So it was just an extra year of maturity, uh, a year where I'm still in high school, but I'm away from my house. 
right? So I'm mm-hmm. living on campus and starting to build some of those um, habits that you need to be successful when you go to college. So when I went as a freshman to William and Mary, it wasn't my first time away from home, right? Right. Um, so I had some of those structures kind of and habits still in place that were enabled me to be more successful there. So I, I, I am assuming that it was a really good experience for you and one that you enjoyed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for the, 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 certainly the students who were kind of academically focused, what I found was that it was a a small group of us and we were really supportive uh, Mm because we're all in it for the exact same reason. Right. And so, um, so there was a real camaraderie there and a real sense of support. Um, So, you know, Pete and I would work on homework together. If we were something that we were uh, math problems or something we're stuck on, you know, we could just cross the hall and ask. And it was just, it was a really great group of people. And, uh, and I found that to be really helpful as well. Yeah, I mean, it sounds great. And and it is nice to get that experience of living away from home. At least, you know, you're ready to go. Just this is a, a little step before the, the bigger step. Are there kids having gone through this and maybe seen other students go through this? Are there students for whom you think the PG year is not a great choice? I think for the student who is lower on motivation, um, I mean, one of the things that I found with those academic kids, um, as well as the athletes, I mean, they all had that fire in the belly, right? They all had a a clear purpose for what they wanted to get out of that year. Um, Because, you know, if you talk to most juniors and seniors in high school and say, hey, would you like to do another year of high school? They would say, (laughs) no. No, definitely not. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely not. So, you know, the reason that they chose this is because they had that clear purpose, right? They knew exactly what they wanted to achieve. So if a student is looking for this experience to help them get that motivation, it's likely not going to be the best pathway for them. Right. And probably even more to the point, if a parent is looking for this experience to give student the student the motivation, also unlikely to happen, right? At that point... Agreed you're probably better off just going to the college that you were admitted to. And then if you find your motivation when you're there, then maybe you could apply to transfer, but doing one more year of high school might not be for everyone. Exactly. Um, and I've, I, I actually would say also, I've worked with some students from boarding schools where the concept of a PG year has come up. And in a few cases, we've decided against it mainly because Boarding school can actually sometimes be more of a, more constricting than living at home. You often don't have a car, you can't, you don't have that freedom that you might have had as a senior in high school, right? And so for Mm -hmm. these students, they just had kind of reached the limit of living away from home, but with no privileges associated with becoming 17 or 18 years old. And we just decided one more year of that just wasn't going to work for them. So. Absolutely true. Yeah, um, it is constricting, and part of the part of the value of it, I think, was that it had a really strict structure. Mm-hmm. So every minute of the day, there was you know some place to be and some place to go. There's a lot of um, you know just ways that they kind of occupy your time, mm-hmm. but that but that is also kind of what we were looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, we needed that structure. If you're looking for more freedom, this is definitely not the option. No. Right. right. So if yep. you're chafing at home, then this is not going to be what you want it to be. Um, but I think if, if it was the structure that what they put in place that helped us be successful. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So that brings me to the next big question, which is, you know, for some of our listeners, they may not have ever even heard of a PG year. Mm-hmm. Um, some may have heard of one, but and maybe they knew of one place, and now they know of two because they've heard of Kimball Union from you. But how do you find a good PG program? And, you know, what's your sense of how many are even out there? Um, I think a good number of the private schools do have a PG option. And when I say private, um, usually that's boarding schools. Yeah. Um, we'll have a PG option. I think one of the things to be careful of, and uh, this is what was really helpful for me, is to investigate before you go what the um, opportunities are going to be academically um, to make sure that they have the coursework that you're looking for. And then number two, what is um, how do they incorporate PG students into their um, GPA calculations, their class rank calculations, et cetera? Right. And so if it's something completely separate or if um, you kind of utilize that entire 
uh, academic record to produce the GPA and rank, that might not be as, it's not a clean slate, right? It's not something where you might be able to project a little bit easier than uh, if they don't. So those would be just elements that I would encourage people to look at as they're considering some of these schools and PG years. Um, It was also only about an hour and a half from my home. So it wasn't that difficult to get home from the, for the weekends or on Mm -hmm. breaks. Um, So I found that to be helpful too. Right. And was the quality of the counseling something that you looked at or even really thought about when you were evaluating programs? I didn't necessarily look at that going in, but it was kind of a, a fortunate happenstance that um, they were really supportive. Mm-hmm. And the, the teachers especially were fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so Mr. Howe, who was my math teacher, um, became kind of a, a mentor for years, <laughs> well beyond <laughs> nice. uh, my year there, um, and was just a, a fantastic person to, to kind of connect with. Um, and so, you know, I think that that would be the kind of thing that I would have them investigate off the bat. Um, but finding a good kind of cultural fit where there's a good number of PGs um, for that support network, right. I think is, is going to be helpful for students to look at. Right. So if you're looking for that kind of program that you had where you all bonded together, mm-hmm. if you're going to a school where they're taking a couple of PGs every year, that might yeah. not be the ideal situation for you. So Yeah, exactly. I think a right. critical mass is important. I, yeah, absolutely. It would seem to be. And again, not something that I have ever really thought about, but um, really good suggestions and thoughts for people and um, always helpful when it's based on your own personal experience. So um, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing it with us, Kenan. My pleasure. All right. Well, um Thanks again to Kenan, to all of my guests this week. Um, Next week, Sally is hosting. We're going to be talking about how do you prepare for college-level writing. I can tell you, my colleagues and I can all tell you, we see a lot of high school-level writing, and it needs work. And um, we have some suggestions for how maybe you can improve that writing uh, in preparation for going off to college. We're also doing another listener Q&A. If you have questions, please send them to us gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. You could also pose questions on our Facebook page. You could post questions on our Instagram page. Um, we're at, col- at College Coach BH on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at Elizabeth Heaton 92 um, So if you have questions, please do reach out. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.